Hey everyone, before we get to my interview with Patrick Deneen, I wanted to let you know two quick things. First, I am absolutely not kidding when I say that Why Liberalism Fail is an amazing book that you should absolutely read. I've, I've been talking about this book to all sorts of people, and seriously, get this book. I, I honestly cannot recall the last time a political book had this much of an effect on me. Second, one thing I really wanted to ask Professor Deneen about that I didn't have the time to were some recommendations, uh, aside from the thinkers that we talked about in the podcast that you'll hear, and also some of the people he mentions in his book. And that would be mainly uh, Wendell Berry, who you should also absolutely read. His latest book of collected essays is The World Ending Fire. It's astonishingly good, along with Edmund Burke and Alexis de Tocqueville. Uh, we were able to talk about some other thinkers later on, at which point I just totally geeked out. So honestly, it's probably better that it didn't end up uh, being recorded. But uh, Professor Dean did give me a bunch of recommendations, all of which I've included in the show notes. So really, this was one of my all-time favorite interviews. I hope you enjoy it. My guest today is Patrick Deneen, a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. His book, Why Liberalism Failed, is without a doubt the best book on politics I've read, not just this year, but really in a lot of years. And it, it, it actually caused sort of a kind of a personal ideological reevaluation for me, which was an interesting and, and, and uh, still experience I'm still trying to work through. Uh, and, you know, I've really been, I've been telling a lot of people about this book. I'm very excited about it. And so when Professor Deneen uh, agreed to talk with me on the show about it, I was really thrilled and, and I have him here today. And so, uh, Patrick Deneen, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, I, I'd like to start with the title of your book, and it's a, it's a pretty bold title. Liberalism has failed. I mean, that's the assumption there, the presumption there. And, but I, you know, before we get to why liberalism failed or if it has actually failed, I think that term liberalism is one that maybe people might have some confusion about. And so I was hoping we could start by you explaining what you mean by liberalism, so we can kind of be clear about what you're arguing has failed. Yeah, sure. Um, and also, thank you for those kind words you uh, uh, had to say about the book. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, you write a book and you send it out into the world and you don't know how the response will be. And uh, it's been a little overwhelming, uh, the interest in the book. And so uh, so I, I appreciate your, your kind words. And I think part of the Part of the interest in the book is that uh, people may approach it and think this is a book condemning sort of left progressivism or criticizing left progressivism. And, and there is that part of the book as well, but it's really a kind of critique of a, of a kind of entire sort of ideological system. You could broadly say the political system of, of the West, of Europe and the United States. And, uh, uh, and, and really, my argument is that the kind of the deepest underlying philosophical assumptions um, that uh, uh, we're, we're at, at the creation of um, kind of the intellectual origins of liberalism, uh, we're actually based on a kind of false premise of human nature, uh, this kind of a, a vision of a radically autonomous self, a kind of self-making self uh, that's envisioned in some of the earliest uh, of liberal thinkers, and I think is manifesting itself today in kind of how we have arranged our world. So the argument of my book isn't simply that there's just one side of the political spectrum uh, that's failed. It's really uh, what we think about as both the left and the right in their different guises, both advancing this ideology of liberalism, uh, have kind of reached us 
or, or, or led us to a point um, where uh, increasingly I think it's visible to us that this the entire sort of political system is in this kind of state of, uh, you know, sort of, if not advanced decay, uh, uh, perhaps even outright um, crisis. Right. So in a sense, then, and, and this is maybe making it too simplified, but by liberalism, we can almost say kind of a, a, a radical individualism, at least by sort of historical standards is that is that going too far would you say well yeah so as i as i just suggested um in the first instance you see in um some of the earliest architects of liberal thinking and and i'm several times in the book i mentioned the thinker john locke and his precursor uh thomas hobbes uh when they think about what is human nature they place human beings in this sort of historyless placeless traditionless cultureless um religious less uh uh sort of non-place uh and and by sort of taking human beings out of what we think of um human beings living and living in families living in communities living in traditions living in cultures uh the argument was that human nature the real human nature is when we strip all those sort of accidents of our birth away and then we see true human nature which is this sort of radically individuated self and while these philosophers use this as a kind of way or a kind of almost philosophical means of um, understanding what's true about human beings across time and place, my, the argument of my book is that this becomes implicitly the kind of goal for the kind of human being liberalism actually seeks to create. Uh, and it seems to me that as we, again, we approach kind of advanced liberalism as its sort of success manifests itself, its inherent failure also manifests itself because this is not true to what we are as human beings. And, and so in a way, this is kind of a well, 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 very much a radical, it was a radical experiment, given the fact that for almost the entirety of human civilization, we, we had a very different sort of understanding of what human beings were and their situatedness in communities and place and that, and, and that sort of thing. And, and it seems to me that maybe part of the difficulty is that it's hard for us to grasp this because we don't even really think about this, whether we're on the right or the left, this is just sort of the, the water that we swim in, as it were, this kind of just the, the, the individual being, you know, supremely important, essentially. Right. Yeah, no, in fact, um, many of these authors, and you can even look to our own founding fathers in American tradition, refer to this um, philosophical, um, the, the effort to actuate or to instantiate or realize this philosophy, they refer to it as an experiment, as a kind of um, something that hasn't been tried before, except that, you know, human society isn't really the same thing as a Petri dish. And so we have to kind of live with the consequences. It's not a controlled experiment. It's really just kind of, we're just going to try this uh, before we have any sort of test trials and so forth. And so we've really lived um, with the kind of unfolding of this inherent underlying logic uh, of liberal philosophy. And I think it, it hasn't been as fully manifest uh, to us. Uh, because it was kind of, it was, uh, you know, this, this philosophic experiment took place in a kind of mixed context, in a context which you still had strong influences of Christianity, strong influences of sort of cultural norms and inheritances, even sort of, you know, broadly speaking, the, the continuity of antiquity into modernity, you know, especially through the influence uh, of, of Christian thought and Christian um, tradition. Uh, I think today what we're seeing is really kind of, um, it's kind of success or it's, it's triumph in certain ways, uh, becoming truly itself. 
but the irony is that in coming becoming truly itself and having sort of uh, sort of eviscerated and sort of uh, evacuated those other kinds of influences, uh, we're seeing that it was really based on a, a kind of false conception of human nature. And uh, I think it seems to me as a result, uh, we're seeing a kind of concomitant crisis in our political order. So, I mean, you mentioned the role of religion here, and obviously we were sort of founded on Judeo-Christian values. And I guess I, I sort of, my sense is, is what you're saying is that these kind of acted as, in a way, sort of a counterweight to what what uh, liberalism w- was pushing. And uh, and it seems to me that with the decline of faith, at least in a in a very serious kind of way as a bedrock part of people's lives, then that counterweight has been pulled away and it's allowed liberalism to be kind of more fully itself. Is, is that is that more or less right? Yeah, that's well, that's precisely my argument. Now, this is this is a point over which there's a lot of debate, and as as you probably are well aware, um, many of my many of my friends on the conservative sort of side of the spectrum uh, hold a very different view about uh, the relationship of liberalism and Christianity broadly, um, and even the, the the kind of the way of understanding liberalism, and, and to sort of put I guess give give uh, some voice to that argument. The argument is that sort of in its earliest founding moments, particularly the American founding tradition, our constitutional order, there was no difference between Christianity and liberalism. In fact, they were seen as really con- continuous with each other, and that liberalism was in some ways the kind of the political system that most accorded with a certain kind of Christian vision for, for human life, a kind of limited state allowing for full, full flourishing of religious practice, uh, relative toleration about religious belief. Um, room for conscience and so forth. And this is, of course, a, a long and old story that that uh, uh, hardly needs to be told. And and my argument is really that this this was a kind of it was a sort of charmed moment in which uh, kind of this Christian tradition and this liberal tradition could be seen as sort of um, fundamentally similar, if not identical. But it seems to me that they've been really kind of moving apart and now have reached a point of a divorce. And we're seeing it seems to me much more clearly that they're really fundamentally different. Uh, they're really based on fundamentally different premises. And while they kind of coexisted for a period of time, as they've become more divorced, our political system has become more and more brittle, uh, particularly as um, it seems to me liberalism lays more and more of a claim to the core beliefs of what human beings should hold. In other words, it proposes itself as a kind of alternative religion, if I could put it uh, that way. Uh, and, and one of the great ways in which we see um, the contemporary debate taking place is that it really does start to take the form of almost a kind of religious war, as opposed to just a political debate in which uh, uh, kind of those who are the, the most fervent adherents of liberalism see liberal beliefs today, in particular the belief in the self-making self, this autonomous individual, uh, as the necessary core belief uh, that has to be held by a modern right-thinking person. And if one doesn't hold this belief, you're actually now the modern equivalent of a heretic. Right. And it seems to me this all is kind of bound up also with with capitalism and kind of an economic kind of counterpart to this. And, and I guess we kind of, when I think about this, it seems like the market and this kind of idea of choice being the ultimate good, they're very they're very connected, right? I mean, it's sort of difficult to, to separate them, at least as a practical matter, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, so uh, the argument that in the book that's probably been the most, um, in some ways, controversial and also, I think, has been the source of a lot of commentary 
and interest is that I, I argue that this liberal philosophy and this experiment has been equally advanced by both the left and the right, uh, and that the left has advanced it sort of most obviously through the kind of invocation of the role of the state uh, and the state as the kind of the, the locus of, um, in particular, where we can achieve a kind of delinking of selves from each other. Uh, what I describe as the kind of depersonalization of our political, social, and cultural lives, that, that we are no longer personally bound and obligated uh, to other people around us, and that the government becomes the mediator uh, and replacement for these kinds of personal bonds and obligations. And, but I argue that at the same time, it's uh, the political right where you find a different iteration of this, and in particular, it's the market that becomes the locus for this depersonalization of personal obligation um, and uh, indebtedness in the kind of much more uh, interpersonal sense of that term, uh, and uh, uh, that that the, the the kind of embrace of the market as the the the, the almost you could say the primary locus where so much of our interactions with each other are thought best to take place is not opposite in interesting ways to the view of the state, but actually works kind of hand in glove with the left view of the state. And you know, part of the argument that I make is that it's the that while we sort of our everyday political life tends to be a battle between those who hold the market as sacrosanct and those who hold the state as sacrosanct, what both of these arguments and indeed their political manifestation end up doing is advancing this regime of depersonalization, of replacing kind of, again, these interpersonal bonds and relationships and debts and obligations uh, with these depersonalized relationships, uh, and such that the state and the market wax together. Uh, you know, it's not as if one is winning and one is losing. They both grow and they're both magnified and, and, and extend simultaneously. Uh, and so, so each side sort of has a correct claim that sort of one one side of the spectrum looms too large. It's just that neither side is willing to acknowledge, in fact, that they are working sort of uh, to mutually support each other. It seems to me that there's a connection here with, with and this word's going to sound awkward, I think, to a lot of folks' word, uh, ears, is uh, virtue. Um, in that, it seems to me that both the left and the right are arguing that there's this sort of outside thing that will uh, organize our affairs, whether it be the market, uh, the, the the logic of the market, or the rules of the, the rule of law and the state. But but this idea that well we should depend on and we should promote virtue and individual humans to kind of guide our affairs that that sort of is something that we don't see as much of. And but and I think that's important. It seems to me at least because that was at least. That was, it seems to me, was an idea that the very old idea that we should, the role of a society should be to inculcate virtue into people and not just allow the market to do its thing or just, you know, go by the rules of the state. Is that, I mean, that wasn't a much older tradition, right? Sure. Yeah. Well, of course, this is, you might say this is, this is effectively in various ways, the pre-modern tradition writ large is a. Uh, uh, you know, obviously, various debates about the nature of virtue. You have sort of classical understanding of what virtue is and relative ranking of the virtues. You have a Christian understanding of what the virtues were. Uh, and then you have a kind of amalgamation and kind of, um, you know, particularly Thomas Aquinas and trying to, trying to bring together the, the pre-Christian and the Christian understandings of virtue so that there are debates over the nature of virtue. It's not simply one single tradition. But what's important is that there was a common agreement 
that the sort of end and purpose of human society, and this would include government, but it would include sort of all of its institutions, the market, uh, society at large, culture, uh, and so forth, uh, was the promotion of virtue, which is to say uh, the, the attempt to realize a certain conception of the human good, to realize, uh, to use the Aristotelian term, to realize our telos, our end, that which we're, what we're created for. Um, and really what you could say liberalism is at its core is the effort to say this is this is no longer going to be um, the object, certainly of government. That the that that in terms of our public lives together, we are going to bracket the question of the good or of virtue. We're no longer going to be in the business of attempting to articulate what what constitutes the nature of the good. And so, government sort of suggests that we're we're neutral about the nature of the good. We're going to step out of these kinds of debates. That's been the kind of the the classical understanding of what liberalism is, but what it seems to me has been largely overlooked, not entirely because there are philosophers who've, who've noticed this, but what has been largely overlooked is that liberalism actually does propose its kind of its own conception of the good, as I've been saying, this idea of the self-making self. So you can't get away from a kind of non-neutral understanding of what constitutes like the end and purpose of human life. It's just that liberalism in some ways smuggles it in, in a way that makes it the norm without our recognition of its being, in fact, just that, just uh, in fact, being a norm. Well, and, and, you know, that gets to this idea, at least to me, of of choice and freedom. And it seems to me liberalism associates choice and opportunity with freedom. But but in the book, what I think one of the really interesting things in the book is you, you point out that uh, what we understand as freedom it was a very different idea for for ancients, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how the nature of our how our understanding of freedom has changed, and you know how that happened, and why it's so very important. Yeah, and again, this is I think one of the key um, key aspects of understanding what is liberalism and what is its nature. Uh, that it's not as if this word liberty, at the very heart of the word liberalism, uh, didn't exist before this philosophy of liberalism. It's a very old word. It goes. The word itself is from ancient Rome. It has its Greek uh, and even uh, sort of Hebrew and, uh, and even older language uh, has these various variants. Uh, and what the word libertas and uh, or, or again its variants meant uh, in the classical times was freedom that's achieved by a by a human being or by a political society by means of sort of governing. Or disciplining or ruling over the basest part of one's nature. So, if you read, for example, Plato's Republic, at the end of Plato's Republic, he speaks of the tyrant. And sort of by modern understanding, the tyrant, we would see the tyrant as the freest human being, because what Plato describes in that, or Socrates describes in those passages, is the person who gets to do whatever he or she wants. The tyrant is the person who's in a sense, has no obstacles or uh, or limitations on what that person can do politically, socially, and otherwise. Uh, and yet Plato describes that person as the sort of the lowest and basest form of a slave because that person is enslaved by their passions and desires. In other words, will pursue the desires and the passions and the basest instincts um, in ways that will ultimately drive that person into a state of kind of bondage because we can never satiate those desires. They can never be truly satiated. You know, we just, you know, just finished the Christmas season. I'm sure there are a lot of kids who are already sort of starting to think, you know, all of my wishes weren't fulfilled uh, with all the presents I got. Uh, that the first thing you start to notice about a human being is that we're sort of desiring machines. 
Uh, and so from the classical tradition, and this is really the core of what virtue is, virtue is the, is the cultivation of the ability uh, to govern these desires and to understand that true liberty is the capacity to overcome or at least to tame these desires uh, for, these, for these base and fleeting and temporary and, let's say, ultimately sort of unfulfillable uh, forms of desire. And that what really what you see in the beginnings of the modern liberal experiment is the uh, is, is, is the reten- retention of the word liberty as a core feature and ambition of what human society is about. But it's redefinition that liberty is now becomes what had been its opposite in the classical tradition. Liberty is defined by figures like Hobbes and by Locke uh, as the freedom from external obstacles. Uh, as Locke puts it in the second treatise of government, liberty is the condition of disposing of my person and my possessions as I see fit. Uh, as that person sees, it's it's the absence of any external limitation uh, upon my my personal um, uh, ability to do what I want, uh, and and as a result, really, what we are living in is a world today in which you could say the what we were just speaking of the combination of both state and market have been oriented at offering us, and indeed suggesting that the only and ultimate form of freedom is that form of life that was once defined as a kind of absence of freedom. If you think of sort of the most popular advertising jingles, just do it, uh, you know, and all these various ways of thinking about ourselves, uh, our entire society is now oriented, indeed, in some ways seeks to educate us that you're not truly free unless you are, uh, you know, liberated of all constraints upon your ability to do what it is, whatever it is you might want. So in this sense, we live in a world in which we no longer see or even perceive as another way of understanding freedom. As we were saying earlier, the decline, particularly of the Christian influence that had been the kind of bearer of this tradition into the modern period, the decline of that tradition has, I think, made that alternative understanding of liberty really almost unknowable uh, to contemporary liberal human beings. And again, another reason for the failure of liberalism is here again, you could say it's success. Right. And it seems like what we, we see in a lot of the most uh, advanced liberal countries is we see a lot of uh, uh, pathologies like, uh, uh, you know, anxiety and, and suicide and drug use. And, and there are some who argue that, well, this is exactly what you get when liberalism essentially runs amok is all of these choices and, and all of this without any kind of a, uh, with any kind of a purpose behind it, then leaves people sort of floundering for meaning, essentially. Yeah, um, you know, and this has been um, a frequent matter of discussion with many of my critics and interlocutors who have pointed out, and quite correctly, that broadly speaking, this phenomenon of liberalism, which of course includes capitalism, has in fact been enormously successful at what it set out to do, which is to provide us with a great deal of wealth and prosperity and material uh, goods, and and that we've seen this kind of explosion of relative wealth, the decline of poverty, uh, hunger, and so forth. And that's, that's certainly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't begin to gainsay any of that. You find these arguments from people on the left, including Steven Pinker in his book, Enlightenment Now, and people on the right, like Jonah Goldberg in, in his book, um, the, the, yeah, the Twilight of the West, I believe it's called. Or, um, uh, but so that, that the argument is that because of these material gains uh, and, and benefits, we can just sort of definitively declare that liberalism has not only not failed, that has wildly succeeded. And I think the counter to this is to suggest that there are a kind of a whole range of, we could say, measurements of 
human good uh, and human flourishing, kind of talking about telos, that would suggest that it turns out that human beings certainly need material goods. Uh, we need material goods in sufficient measure not to have, not to experience want, ideally, uh, to indeed to have a degree of, um, you know, be able to enjoy our, our physical environments and so forth. Uh, but at the same time, that doesn't constitute human happiness. And the, the deepest and most constitutive aspects of human happiness seems to be the things that um, support and undergird deep sense of connection to other human beings, uh, the sense of belonging, of being a part of something larger than oneself, the kind of an experience of one's life as part of a, of a longer narrative that links my lifespan with lifespans that have preceded me and those that will follow me. So you could say that the deepest form of human satisfaction, um, you know, once we satisfy those, those, at least those basic material needs, is the cultivation of the goods of friendship, of family, of community. And if we look at a different set of measures, uh, that sort of we could try to measure those forms of relationship, what we see is absolute devastation uh, across our civilization. And this is true both in America and as well as Europe, that if you look at measures of community life, you can look at Robert Putnam's work in Bowling Alone and so forth, uh, and measures of family life, the, the decline of marriage, the decline of uh, likelihood of having children, uh, the rise of loneliness, self-reported loneliness figures 40% of Americans now report that they are very often feel lonely, not just as a passing or occasional thing, but as a kind of permanent condition. And of course, then when we look at uh, very, you know, the rising mortality rate in the United States, particularly as a result of desire for self-medication, the opiate addiction, uh, and so forth, what we see is a kind of a, a different kind of story. Uh, that certainly we need material goods and material things, but when it comes to the deepest form of human satisfaction, it seems that our society is desperately and quite extraordinarily failing. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I'm, I imagine you're familiar with it. I think uh, you mentioned Steven Pinker, and there was an article not long ago that Andrew Sullivan wrote, sort of looking at both Pinker's argument and and yours, and essentially saying it seems to me that well, Pinker's not wrong, but he doesn't go deep enough really in, in a way so he, he kind of i think ended up deciding that you had your your argument was being dismissed far too uh quickly by a lot of folks like steven pinker essentially yeah when, when people ask me uh, what what's the favorite review written of your book <laughs> it's that that <laughs> sullivan essay uh, is usually the first that i mention in particular because you know andrew sullivan is someone who you might think of as being kind of very opposite to, to my position. I mean, he's someone who sometimes describes himself as a conservative, but he's been someone who's been in advance of a number of liberal causes that I happen to find myself on the opposite side of, um, but, uh, but who I think read our books together and found that uh, it was really, uh, at the end of the day, that um, uh, my sort of critique of liberalism was expressing something, as he put, as you, as you remind me, uh, kind of a deeper analysis. And I think, you know, again, liberalism in many ways deals with the the surface of things, the surface of what liberty looks like, or the surface of what human satisfaction looks like, uh, that human satisfaction consists of material goods. And that's, that's articulated very early in, uh, uh, in, in authors like John Locke, who says you know, that the purpose and aim of government is to provide us with the opportunity for material goods. And uh, it seems to me that um, as a society, uh, we've embraced the idea that uh, you know, the, the person with the most toys wins, while in fact, ignoring that uh, uh, the, the human creature uh, and the human soul has longings that can't be satisfied uh, merely in the material realm. 
Now, education plays a big role in all of this as well. And, and certainly, we've seen a big change in how society views higher education. I mean, uh, the liberal arts are uh, everywhere in decline. And, you know, what used to be called the, the servile arts, no one calls them that anymore, uh, seem to really be what, you know, folks really focus on. I mean, I see this at, you know, at that uh, North Kentucky University, and it's not unique there. Everyone's focusing on vocational job education and the idea that history or philosophy or English or anything could be of any value. It seems to be, well, no, because there's no economic value. And, and you see this as a big part of the problem, right? I do. Well, so as I was saying earlier, um, the word Liberty is a very old word, and liberal education is a very old concept that arose under a very different understanding of what liberty was. Uh, in other words, liberal education was linked to that older understanding of what liberty was. And it, and it stands to reason that uh, if liberty is something that has to be won through a kind of self-discipline, a learning of what self-government is, the cultivation of virtue, the cultivation of a certain kind of character, uh, habits, uh, and um, the, you know certain capacities, then a liberal art education was an education in the cultivation of proper liberty, that is to say, a proper form of self-government. And you could say that any society that valued true liberty in this sense had to be, uh, in, in its deepest commitments, had to stress and emphasize the importance of the liberal arts, that you couldn't be uh, either a good human being, a kind of satisfied or excellent human being, or you couldn't have a good society. You couldn't have good citizens unless you had a proper cultivation uh, uh, in the in the um, in in this older understanding of what liberty was. Uh, if you change the definition of liberty, which is what really you see at the beginnings of liberalism and what we have today, then you find an, an odd disconnect. You you continue to have the liberal arts, which is what we had for a number of years, but become disconnected with their end. So you have the liberal arts now as a kind of, you know, increasingly seen as sort of something you do because you might need to be able to talk about yeah. Thucydides at a cocktail party, but its purpose becomes disconnected. And, you know, I came of age during the 80s when we had these kind of culture wars in which there was all this argument about needing the great books. And I was very taken with that. I supported, you know, sort of Alan Bloom and I was an admirer of Bloom's and a number of other authors. But, you know, thinking back on that now, you know, 20, 30 years later, what strikes me is that already then, the defenders of the great books, already it's in a way we're living in an age in which the ends of liberal arts had been disconnected uh, from, from their practice. And that really what was being proposed was that it was simply for the sake of philosophy or the sake of um, you know, reflectiveness or critical thinking is why we embrace the liberal arts. And once that happened, it seemed to me it opened the door to really simply dismissing the liberal arts. They became seen as superfluous as irrelevant, as kind of a waste of time. And you had, you know, you had recently Scott Walker and Obama, President Obama, both mocking people who study things like philosophy or art history uh, as being sort of precious and wasting their time and money. Uh, when in fact, of course, this was a great and grand tradition of what it was to learn what liberty is and how to practice liberty. And so what today, of course, what we have is that if liberty is defined as the freedom to do what we want without obstacle, then naturally, the study uh, and emphasis in education is going to move toward those disciplines that allow us to live without those kinds of obstacles. And this means um, in the kind of course um, in what we see as the popular move toward the STEM disciplines and business uh, or science, technology, engineering, mathematics, 
and economistic disciplines like business and economics so that allow us to roll back the limitations of nature on the one hand to increase our wealth and prosperity on the other. And then you have this corresponding and striking effort in the humanities, in English departments and history departments and sociology and so forth, uh, to basically, in a way, mimic this move, which is to say that what's being taught in those disciplines is that true liberty consists in complete self-liberation and complete self-definition. And what we think about today is the sort of radicalization of the humanities, the kind of postmodernist move of 20 years ago, was really a kind of, again, a harbinger of this move away from the classical liberal arts. So that what the disciplines we traditionally associate with the liberal arts are also now completely disconnected with that older understanding of liberty. And they have, have in fact, embraced the new understanding of liberty. So the most liberative disciplines out there today are the humanities that were once the core of the liberal arts. Uh, another I, concept I want to get in is this idea of, of I guess, humility, of limits, that sort of thing. And, and it, it reminded me of, of someone, I, I'll be embarrassed to, to say, that I've never actually read until recently, and that's uh, the Kentucky writer Wendell Berry. And this is coming from someone who got his PhD from University of Kentucky. My gosh, how could I have missed him? But um, I always just thought that Wendell Berry was just this kind of agricultural writer who had this kind of weird thing for soil erosion. And I picked him up and thought, well, this has nothing to do with me or my world. But really, this idea of of limits and humility and, and this sort of thing, it seems to me to be very tied into what you're talking about. And you mentioned Barry a number of times in, in your book. And, and so I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about how Wendell Berry's influenced your thinking on all this. Yeah, I'm actually I'm glad you asked that because I, I don't know if anybody I've talked to in many podcasts and interviews has actually raised uh, Barry as, as a person of interest. I do mention him uh, with some frequency in the book, I think four or five or six times. Um, and uh, actually, one of the most gratifying responses to the book was, a, was of course, a handwritten letter that I received from <laughs> Wendell Berry, uh, who had read the book and uh, wrote, uh, wrote a letter to me uh, expressing his admiration for the book. And that was a deep gratification for me. Um, I probably about a decade, maybe a dozen years ago, I just picked up, um, it was a book of essays by Barry. I think it was Home Economics, one of his books of essays. And I was just pretty, from about page five on, I was really hooked uh, and then proceeded to read just about every essay he'd written and then moved on to his fiction. So I went through kind of, you know, the the sort of book, the, the sort of book version of, of, uh, of binging on, mm -hmm. on a single author, uh, reading a lot of Wendell Berry. And, and you know, he's someone who has really inhabited my thinking. Uh, and I, I would, you know, among the authors I would most credit for my book and the thinking behind my book, I would point to Wendell Berry. And in particular, Berry, it seems to me, it's hard to, hard to sort of summarize this. Um, what Berry really articulates is that it all hangs together. Everything hangs together. That, you know, we were just speaking about education. And education is just like one thread. Uh, that um, if you pull that thread, what you see is that it's connected to the entire fabric, right? That you can't talk about the crisis of our political system without speaking about uh, the crisis of education. And you can't speak about the crisis of our educational system without speaking about the crisis of technology and the crisis that technology introduces and how that's related to this understanding of, of liberation. And that this is, of course, related to our economic crisis, 
uh, and has its roots, among other things, in the desire, what Aristotle would call pleonexia, the desire for too much, the, the desire for excess. Uh, and this is, of course, related, among other things, to the crisis in agriculture, which is something that, that Barry has written about. So, you know, I come at my subject through the lens of political theory. And what I discovered from Barry is he came at this from his concern about farming and the crisis of farming. And we end up with a very similar analysis because you can't really analyze these phenomena unless you see the deep interpenetration of all these various um, aspects, you could say, of our kind of common life and uh, the, the, the sort of the fundamental aspects of what constitute human life, family, community, um, economics, society, and so forth, religion, uh, uh, without seeing the deep interconnection of these various phenomena. And, and one of the pathologies of academia is, is the kind of specialization uh, that we're required to, to undertake makes it very difficult for, for us to see how all of these various aspects are interconnected. So someone reading someone like Barry, especially for an academic, is a kind of extraordinary form of, in its own way, a kind of liberation, the proper form of liberation, which is, uh, enables one to see far more deeply and, and comprehensively the deepest connections uh, that even one's own discipline can sometimes obstruct uh, from one from seeing. Uh, and, and, you know, it's really, I think, Barry's thinking about the deepest interconnections between his own sort of concerns in farming and how they related broadly to a whole set of themes and questions that's difficult, again, to summarize and just um, uh, trying to think about his work. Uh, that really was a lens for me in thinking about uh, our political crisis. Yeah, and, and he's such a beautiful writer. I mean, he's a poet and that just shows in his writing the way he, the way he puts things. I, I, I read, uh, I'm reading the world ending fire, which is his most recent essay collection and over, over dinner. And I'm always interrupting my wife to say, you gotta, you gotta hear this because it's just, it, it's just beautiful stuff. It really, uh, he's, amazing. he's a, he is, he really is a, uh, extraordinarily beautiful writer. You're right about that. And one of his essays, I can't remember which one now, but he speaks of virtue as being ultimately connected to virtuosity. Uh, and, and it's just that little insight. It's just so sparkling and striking because we tend to think of virtue as this, this like, you know, this, I don't know, this kind of hard discipline you yeah. have to do to overcome your desires and so forth. And what he's really speaking of is doing something well. The ability to know how to do something well is what deepest core sort of constitutes a kind of the practice of virtue. It's not an abstract sort of, you know, something you learn from a textbook. It's by doing something and doing something well. You can see that for Barry, writing is really one of the, his one of his main focus, uh, his foci for for achieving a kind of virtuosity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another influence I want to ask you about is Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, I'll uh, it, I'm embarrassed to admit that I've never actually read all the way through Democracy in America, which I need to get on that, but um, I've always had this impression of the book, and, and that is that uh, Tocqueville was incredibly impressed with, you know, all the vigor and energy of uh, the young America and kind of comparing us, you know, very favorably to Europe. But obviously that's, as you point out, that's incredibly uh, incomplete and, and, and probably more than a little inaccurate. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what Tocqueville saw, I mean, way back then, writing in the 1830s, applies to what you're talking about here and now. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I think there was a kind of almost a, night, a sort of post-war Tocqueville uh, that uh, read him 
in this very positive light that he he came to America and he really admired America. He was stunned and struck by America. And that's certainly that's certainly the case. There you can you can find that um, aspect of of Tocqueville. But you know he begins the book in the very first pages by saying that uh, he 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 was inspired to write the book by thinking about what he said like this long seven hundred year trajectory that had sort of led to the sort of the the defeat uh, and overcoming of aristocracy and its replacement by, by democracy. And he said that viewing this 700-year history filled him with a kind of religious terror, was the words that he used. Uh, so he begins the book already by suggesting, you know, this is not just going to be a happy story. Uh, this is going to be a story in which um, he's going to trace in some ways both the triumph of democracy, but also its great its great dangers and indeed its peril. And, and you know, again, I, I have to acknowledge that my own book was really just kind of just ripping off uh, Tocqueville's thesis, because what Tocqueville really ends his book by arguing is that as democracy becomes more and more itself, as it as it sort of eliminates in particular any vestiges of an aristocratic past. Uh, what it will do is it will simultaneously become fully itself and also reach a kind of moment of its own crisis and um, and perhaps even its own self-abnegation, its self-contradiction. And in his, one of his most famous chapters at the very end of the book, he says that d- democracy may actually result in a, in a new kind of despotism, that the rise and success of democracy will be met with a populace that no longer really wants to take over the reins of needing to govern themselves, of being active democratic citizens. And as a result, they'll kind of voluntarily give over the task of the public life to, he says, this vast tutelary sort of caretaker government who will give them what they want, will in fact uh, simply be treating children, people who won't grow up. That chilling sort of last, almost last chapter of the book, he says, look, if you don't correct course, you democracy don't correct course, this is what will will be the likely outcome of democracy. It's sort of its opposite. So it's a it's a book that Tocqueville wrote as a kind of warning, you know, in the 1830s, 1840s, saying you, you democracy, this this new regime that is going to take over the entire world, you have to be aware that you have these inherent currents that are going to end up uh, leading you to a point of sort of self-destruction or self-contradiction and correct for these, right? Uh, and some of this may be actually retaining some aspects of aristocracy that you'll find distasteful. You know, he, he says, among other things, you should retain religious belief, belief in a creator that you yourself didn't create and that uh, governs you. Um, it seems to me what's, what's striking about reading Tocqueville today is that all of his warnings and all of his recommendations are ones that have now, his warnings have in some ways, or prophecies have become true. His warnings have gone unheeded. Uh, and his correctives now are largely unavailable to us. Uh, and so we're in this kind of very difficult situation with Tocqueville. You can read Tocqueville now, not so much as prophecy as history, uh, with the question of what do we do now, now that we have these sort of set of recommendations that are really not going to be um, available to us? How are we going to create community where we have no community? How are we going to um, foster asso- the arts of association where people are much more privatistic? How do we uh, create a sense of elongated time, a sense of generational connection where people now live these kind of very fragmented, isolated lives? And how do we foster a sense of religious belief, a belief in a creator outside of ourselves 
at a time when we're seeing this rise of extraordinary secularization and disbelief. Um, so we're left in this kind of very difficult situation when it comes to Tocqueville. He gives us a kind of playbook, but we don't have the muscles uh, that uh, need to be exercised uh, to, to sort of correct for democracy's great uh, shortcomings. So I, I see Tocqueville as in many ways a kind of Cassandra-like figure uh, who gives us a kind of set of warnings that we have been kind of incapable of hearing. Yeah, and you know, that I, I finished the book feeling uh, that I absolutely agreed with you, but also feeling incredibly depressed, I gotta say, you know, because it's hard to see a way out of this as a society. I mean, individual communities can perhaps do things, but how to sort of revitalize the, these ancient ideas and this idea of virtue and this different, you know, this older idea of freedom. That's uh, no one has any good answers for that. And I, I think you were sort of unfairly critiqued by some for saying, well, you don't offer solutions. Well, good luck with that. I mean, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big job, certainly. Yeah. And in fact, that was, uh, <laughs> you're right. I, a lot of people were critical of me for not giving a program, the 12 point program for what to do next. And that was partly because I didn't want to give some sort of false impression that this was going to be an easy task. In fact, I wanted to do the opposite. I didn't necessarily want to leave people depressed. Uh, but I did want to leave a sense of just how daunting our kind of circumstance was. And so on the one hand, I do conclude by saying, you know, some of this, some of what we have to do is probably going to be much more retail. It's not going to be comprehensive. It's difficult to say, let's just replace a system with another system um, to kind of live lives uh, in our communities with our families that um, strive to, in some ways, provide a kind of counterculture to this um to this anti-culture that that uh, we live we live in um but i also i also conclude by suggesting look liberalism was at its least in its earliest conception was a kind of was a new political philosophy that took a long time to develop uh that took many different steps uh to uh, unfold many different um political actors to advance and it seems to me that we're at this moment where oddly enough maybe what we need is not so much new practice, uh, new, you know, sort of comprehensive efforts to create new comprehensive practices. But on the one hand, modest practices combined with new, fundamentally new ways of thinking. So it's a, it's a moment for kind of retail practice and, and pretty, pretty ambitious political thinking. And uh, so part of what my book ended was a, as an invitation to particularly, I think, a younger generation of people who are very discontent uh, with the way things are today. Uh, I've been really struck. I've been giving talks all over the country about the book. My audiences are overwhelmingly young, uh, which is not what you usually expect when you give a talk about a book. But there's just a lot of young people who are very unhappy and sense there's something really awry uh, with the world that they've inherited. And I think out of this generation, we're likely to see, you know, who knows, maybe the next Augustine or the next Plato or the next Hobbes. In other words, someone who's going to really rethink uh, the way we should organize ourselves. That might be the springboard uh, to a real um, a, a kind of a new a new way forward, a new a new step, a new a new path. Um, and, and my book was really you know, kind of an invitation for for that uh, for that next thinker. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll give I'll give a shot in, in my next book, but I also think that it's uh, it's going to have to be a multi generational project. Well, that that sounds like a good, at least semi-hopeful or not hopeless note to close on. So let's do that. Uh, Patrick Deneen, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for this conversation.